The Brandon Peters Show may contain explicit language and detailed plot points. For more information on the show, stay tuned to the end of the episode. Again, it's his show. It's Brandon. And welcome back to the Brandon Peters Show as we bounce back into our regular format. I hope you enjoyed the holiday gift guide specials last week. Let me know what you thought about them. Today, we will be having a discussion on the 1981 documentary, The Decline of Western Civilization. And joining me today, I am elated to have the director of one of my favorite films of the year, Bleeding Audio, Chelsea Christer. Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know what to say after that. Was I supposed to say anything? No. Oh my God. Thank you. What a kind introduction. Hi. Thanks for having me here. (laughs) No problem. Damn right could be one. That could be a... That could be something you say. (laughs) So before I start drooling over your wonderful film here, let's talk about you for a little bit. You as a filmmaker, where did that passion for film come from and wanting to create? Is there like an exact moment you can recall where a film or an event or something really opened your eyes and clicked your brain like, this is what I got to do. This is what I was meant to do here. Yeah. I can't think of any one singular moment, just like a a bunch of little moments, but I would say what I realized is that I I basically I've always wanted to be a storyteller and I've kind of always been a storyteller even as a kid like I'd make up these stories and just audibly tell them to family members I remember like when I was in fourth grade I wrote a full stage play for Halloween because it was my favorite holiday and I actually like recruited kids because I was like oh there's no drama club there should be a drama club and I like recruited kids from my class to act in this thing they made like a special period for people to perform in it and shit like I I, I don't know. I just I've always wanted to tell stories. And then when I got to high school, I started to get really interested in photography and visually telling stories was really interesting to me. In high school, I also started to learn that there was music other than music that was on the radio and music that I identified with and just like a whole group of people that I could connect with. And and so I started to become very interested in music. And then I started taking video production classes in high school, too. And I was like, oh, this is like a combination of all these interests I have, which is storytelling, visual storytelling, and music and just like auditory storytelling. I think it was like in my video production class in high school, I like made a really terrible music video. But I was obsessed with making sure that there was a story in the video. And I was editing it like crazy. And it gave me so much life. And I was like, okay, like I could do this forever and be a happy person. So I knew from that point, which was probably my sophomore or junior year, I have no idea. But I went all in and went to film school and yada yada. And here I am. (laughs) I like that story. Like that's (laughs) all the parts coming together rather than someone like a lot of like a lot of people like I my person was like, Oh, I saw Tim Burton's Batman. I was blown away. <laughs> and then I saw John Carpenter's Halloween. I'm like, I want to learn how to do this. No, you have like a natural artistic way of building to it. That's pretty unique. 
I guess. I mean, there were movies that kind of inspired me. And like mm-hmm. my my dad in particular, like loves watching movies like that was our family thing to do was just like mm-hmm. gather around and watch movies. There are a few movies that when I decided that I wanted to be a filmmaker, it was kind of the same thing that I learned with music where I was like, oh, there are movies that aren't blockbusters. There are movies that aren't like <laughs> these like silly comedies that all the teenagers love. I think the first one that just made me go, oh, film can be art was Memento. Oh, okay. I was just like, oh, this is crazy. It's breaking the form. It's te- it's like enhancing the story through the format. It was so wildly interesting to me. And I became a total snob from there, obviously. <laughs> Memento is a big one. I, I wrote a yeah. paper on that my sophomore year at college, actually. I was so taken with that one. That is a really good... Did you ever watch it forwards? No. Because I just feel like it would be boring. Oh, no. It's it's a whole different movie. It's, it's not yeah? as good. It's not as okay. good, but it's really different. It's suspenseful in a different way. Yeah. There was this really confusing DVD they released long ago where you had to put in this like code and it would play it the other way. So. I'm pretty sure I have that DVD. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost positive I have it, actually. There you go. It's like the little blue with the pin oh, yep. or the mm-hmm. paper clip. Okay. I do. Uh, and something weird about that is I definitely did a project in college. We did. We broke down Memento from an editing mm-hmm. perspective, I, like mapped the whole thing out. Mm-hmm. But as part of our project in college, I had a Polaroid camera and I took Polaroids of everybody. And like, seriously, almost 10 years passed and I, I was moving or something mm-hmm. and I was moving. I like, you know, I was packing my DVDs and I grabbed my Memento DVD case, completely forgetting about this project mm-hmm. and like a Polaroid of myself slipped out. And I just like had this moment where I was like, what the fuck is happening? You know, <laughs> like, where did this come from? But no, yeah, that movie, it was great. <laughs> don't, don't trust who it's smudged. I know. Uh. Your path late, you like went to film school in San Francisco, and then I, I noticed on your resume you've worked some high-profile PA jobs with Steven Soderbergh's Contagion, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, American Idol. What kind of things did you pick up from those and give you your drive to kind of, like, looks like you just went on your own after that? Maybe this isn't the best answer, but I learned I didn't want to PA anymore <laughs> after those jobs. <laughs> it was after a 22-hour day on The Master. mm Literally, I was dropped off at 7 a.m. and I was picked up at 5 a.m. the next day. And I remember going up to the second second AD and I was supposed to work six hours later on another pickup shoot that they were doing. I went up to the second second. I was like, you guys need me because like, <laughs> I don't think I can stand. I need I need yeah. to sleep. Oh. I could barely stand at the end of the day. And he was like, you know, we're probably covered. And I was like, because I don't want to lose good standing with you guys. But like, there's just no way. And he was like, no, you're good. Like, we're covered. And I was like, great. Thank you. And I like <laughs> left. And I remember driving home or whatever and just being like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that anymore. I felt like they were great experiences. And I feel like it's so important to PA and mm-hmm. witness it and do the work but also peripherally watch what's going on. Right. You get a lot of set etiquette, understanding. You can just soak it in like a sponge. But I also feel like there are some people who are lifelong PAs, and I think that's awesome. I just didn't feel like I was moving towards anything doing it. Right. I I will say that like when I did PA on American Idol, I was working closer with the production office on that one, and they did technically ask me to work in the office for the full season down in LA Mm -hmm. and I was still in college at the time and I was like "Ooh, this is interesting like I could 
go down this route and actually keep working and not even finish school. But I was also like, I don't want to do reality TV. Like, that's not, (laughs) that's like not what I want to do. And I was kind of afraid, like I had been witnessing and not to like shit on anybody, but like I'd been witnessing some of the slight disillusionment that you get working in reality TV. Just you have to (laughs) hide your own humanity and empathy (laughs) to a certain degree, which I was not capable of doing. at all and so I yeah so I ended up not doing that either but honestly I feel like I scored because being a PA on Contagion was very hands-off I got to see a lot of cool stuff and it felt cool Mm -hmm. but PA and on the master was awesome because it was a little more indie and I was actually closer to the set I actually was on the boat and guarding Philip Seymour Hoffman's like eyeline and all this stuff and it was cool and like I got to actually watch how things would run you know and so it was Mm -hmm. a great experience but i just feel like there's a certain point where you just need to take the initiative and just do your own thing but definitely pa just know when to stop (laughs) right so i mean it sounds like instead of earning your stripes you want to just paint your own stripes pretty much yeah that's what after this you have two short films we're just like you and sierra i've seen them both what were the two projects and like how did they come out and i gotta say i really loved we're just like you i thought that was brilliant and the way it was cut together, just excellent. Thank you. Well, We're Just Like You was actually my first project working with Luke, who I worked Mm -hmm. with on Bleeding Audio. Okay. But We're Just Like You was written by a friend, teacher, mentor that I had in college who was kind of observing me finding my way in film school. Because honestly, I went to film school and I was like, I'm going to be a cinematographer. And then like, I saw the cameras and I was like, I fucking hate cameras. I don't want to know the technology. I don't want to keep up to date with it. I just want to know the technical things that I can communicate to make something look good. Mm -hmm. And then you worry about whatever K sensor fucking... And we weren't even working with that when I was in college. We were still working on film cameras and just like little tiny DV tape cameras. I was literally Mm -hmm. like I graduated like a year before fucking red came out that all said the whole tech part of it i just hated and so i was like okay i don't want to be a cinematographer and i was like well i've always been really into editing so then i started kind of going down the editing path and i was like okay i'm gonna be an editor and then i realized i am too social to be an editor you know (laughs) like i just hate sitting in a room alone and um i still love editing but if it's Mm -hmm. the only thing i was doing ah, oh yeah um (laughs) And then I started doing some production design for friends. And then I started kind of ADing and like helping to manage sets, just like kind of dipping my toes into being on set. And I was like, I just Mm -hmm. love this energy. I love this family. My phrase was, oh, I want a job in the future. So I don't want to be a director. It's too outlandish, too out there. But then this teacher who wrote were just like you he was like i want you to direct this because i think you're a director and you don't know it yet (laughs) and i was like um okay fine i'll do it i'll direct Mm -hmm. it i learned a lot there was a lot of decisions that i i still felt like i got to take ownership of making you know given that it was his written material because it actually there was a voiceover throughout the whole thing that i cut out oh okay I was like, I think this is better just having her speak visually. Mm -hmm. And honestly, it was fun workshopping and thinking, what is the story? And it's like, we all seek human connection in some way. And in some ways, it's more fucked up than others. But like, you know, how how, like the challenge was like, how can we humanize a serial killer in a way? And so we did that. And it was really fun to put together and come up with the ideas for some of the shots. 
I think it's the only thing that I've done that I wasn't super connected to the source material and just like had to kind of find what I found interesting about it. Gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) Bleeding Audio, your first feature, a documentary following the trials and tribulations of a band called The Matches. It's a band that kept flirting with breakout success, but just couldn't get over the proverbial hump. And the original run of The Matches goes from, what, 1997 to 2009, starting as The Locals? Yeah, I mean, it's so funny because 1997 is like what the internet says. But if you, you know, you check the receipts, like, I mean, they were still in high school. And while it's it's legit because like they were selling like little demos and stuff, which Mm -hmm. isn't featured in the film at all. They weren't actually trying to be a real band until the year 2000. Internet research says that. And then the documentaries, I'm here in like 2002, 2003, a lot of the early things. But where were you during this time period? And how did you get acclimated to the band? I grew up in Colorado. I didn't grow up in the Bay Area. So I missed out on the matches, fostered this really beautiful local scene called L3 is what they called Mm -hmm. it. And it was just like a really beautiful Bay Area family community scene. And I grew up in Colorado where there really wasn't a centralized scene and there weren't a whole lot of local bands that were actually breaking out. Mm -hmm. But I saw the matches open for what was my favorite band, which was Motion City Soundtrack. Oh my God, they blew up the stage. And I was I was just like, who is this band? <laughs> what is happening? I don't know what's going on. Like I have to get to know their music and everything. And honestly, I was just hooked on the band since then. So, you know, probably 2005. And then when I moved out here for film school and then they became the local band to me, mm-hmm. I, I think like one of my first projects in film school was to direct like a short little mini documentary. And so I reached out to the band and asked if they would let me and they said yes. And so I made this little five minute, I think it was five minutes. I don't remember. It's on the internet somewhere still actually. Oh, okay. um, but I made this little like five minute matches documentary. And yeah, I ended up befriending the band. And when they decided to reunite in 2014, I said, oh my God, yes, let me like help promote this thing for you. Mm-hmm. I, you know, at the time I was doing a ton of marketing videos for, for corporations anyway. And I was like, oh, this would be like a really fun thing for me to do on the side. I had just finished my festival run with Sierra. Mm-hmm. I was just ready and thirsty for a new project. I was just, I was so hungry for it. And so I did these little videos for them and then kind of recognized that their story was a bit bigger, maybe. Okay. And could be something more. And then the show sold out in seconds. I was like, okay, this is my first feature. Gotcha. Was that the aspect that, you know, you wanted to plunge head first into just a full on feature documentary with them? Was there like something that was like, okay, there's an angle. Was it the reunion that made it click and say, I can deep dive into them and tell a whole story? Or was there something in your preliminary research that you thought, here we go? So without giving any spoilers... There was an aspect of the Matches career that I found very interesting and compelling, especially given the current digital age of music, Mm -hmm. which I had known for many years, which was just about the Matches songs and their ownership of those songs. So like one of the things that kicked off their reunion was actually the fact that their first record, the license with Epitaph was expiring. And at first, I didn't understand what this meant or any of that. And they explained, oh, so we own these tracks because we made them and we licensed them with Epitaph instead of Mm -hmm. like selling Epitaph our masters. So therefore, at this 10 year mark, we are now able to release the songs ourselves and also like do whatever we want with them. Yeah. 
There's subsequent records. Epitaph owns the masters, so they can't do anything with those songs on their own without Mm -hmm. Epitaph's permission or partnership. So to me, I thought this is a very interesting aspect of the music industry, this Mm -hmm. slight business acumen or understanding of how artists are able to own their own art. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And so it was partially that interest and curiosity on my part for how the industry has changed for artists or how artists can make money. Yeah. (laughs) But then also when the shows sold out, I thought, okay, this is a bigger story than just that. This is a story about community. This is a story about this band's journey Mm because they had, they had a lot of ups and downs too. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a very compelling story. Was the narrative goal that you had at the beginning fulfilled by the end or did it kind of change a little bit as you went through? Honestly, (laughs) I have such respect for these guys and their humility and their talent. And I personally, I just wanted to make a feature length documentary about them, their hard work ethic, their, you know, crazy art and music and this community they built. And I just wanted to make a movie about that, period. Mm -hmm. And as I was talking to other people and collaborators about, oh, I have this idea for this documentary, you know, all of these things have happened to date. And they're like, oh, you can't make a movie about a band nobody knows. Nobody (laughs) cares. And it was just this thing that was like, well, I can. They're really great. But they were just like, you need to tell a bigger story. And so then that initial curiosity I had of, oh, how are bands navigating the world today was something that I decided to factor into the story. So then it Mm -hmm. became a story that was meant to be like 50% matches, 50% music industry, right? Mm -hmm. And then as we got into post-production, we are editing the film down because we got so many great testimonials from music industry experts. You know, we just started to realize that a lot of the music industry story was just so, I wouldn't say preachy, but it was very prescribed and it didn't Mm -hmm. have the same heart that the matches story did. So what we did is we just embedded anything industry related directly into the matches experience to kind of tell the macro with the micro. It's a great move. Um, yeah. Honestly, yeah, it really kind of helped us to still tell the digital industry story without hammering it in because there's mm-hmm. still so many details that I wanted to have in there. It was basically a dissertation on this is what mechanicals are. This is what, you know, like publishing is. These are PROs, you know, right. and it was just too... It was just too much. <laughs> it sounds so, like it's yeah. another documentary in itself, too. Yes, and I have the footage <laughs> if someone wants to edit it. So There you go. <laughs> but I'm hands off for me. This is for you. <laughs> uh, were there any twists and turns that took it for a different spin through interviews and research that you weren't prepared for or expecting in the middle of things, either in post or during? Yeah, I mean, I did extend production by... A longer period of time like I put off finishing my band interviews for a long time because the band decided to record new music and I was like oh this is oh, oh my gosh this is the ending this is the full circle ending mm-hmm. we've got you know a band who was thrown away and then they come back and their <laughs> reunion inspires them to write new music and yet literally not a frame of any of that recording processes <laughs> in the final film I spent like six months oh. doing this I know don't even get me started oh, um, but it was a a bit of a twist and a turn it delayed production a bunch and i'm still glad i have it so again if somebody else wants to edit it i have that content for you in one of our longer cuts i call it the return of the king ending okay you had all these different things where it would like fade out and then this other ending would start and but then so in a yes exactly and i was so attached to some of it just simply because i was like 
those six months are going to be in this movie. <laughs> and I compromised to just have the matches new songs in the film. Instead. Oh, okay. So I think it's really hard as a documentarian to know exactly when you have to stop. But no matter what, in post-production, you'll you'll know when the timeline stops. Gotcha. Yeah, I've, I've never personally had experience making a documentary. It's got to be a... That just seems like a huge challenge because there's so much a pile and you're like, well, what here? And it's insane. And kudos insane. to you for pulling it off. You talk about the matches, <laughs> the matches music in the film. Was it tough figuring out what went where, what live performance of what song to put here? I mean, you've used music like so effectively in this. I feel like I was supposed to have known who the matches were before and her, <laughs> like the songs like were just so instantly catchy, accessible not, but yet not very sellouty at all. But you immediately agree with everyone in the film that's like, I don't know how this band wasn't huge, and <laughs> you sell them very good because I feel like I I don't know this song, but I feel like I should have heard it in a store or on the radio. Like, how did you go about presenting their music and choosing what to play where? I guess the matches should take credit for that okay. one. <laughs> all right. Well, no, I mean that's just who they are. Like. Mm-hmm. Originally, I had very specifically wanted to keep the records sort of evolving with each act like we did with the animation. Mm -hmm. And so early on, it would be Yvonne Dahl, you know, middle of the film would be Decomposer. And at the end, it would just be Abandoned Hope. And I I mean, honestly, a lot of it was based on performance. So if there was a really specifically great live performance or we wanted to show something that was a little rougher around the edges, like Mm -hmm. we, we really focused picking what was played in the film based on just what their live performance was like. And then when it came to the music itself, honestly, I was unable to get instrumental masters of any of their records. The only one that I was able to get instrumental masters for was a part of Abandoned Hope Mm -hmm. and this unreleased demo album that they have. And so we kind of just used... I mean, I guess technically it was album four is what they call it, but the band doesn't consider it an album. A lot of fans consider it an album. It it was basically the band just didn't want to withhold anything from the fans when they broke up. Mm -hmm. So they just took a bunch of demos, threw it onto a like band camp and just sold it for, you know, pay what you want. And so that was weirdly the only record that had a ton of instrumental on it. And it's arguably like one of the strangest kind of quirkiest sounding ones. And so we just kind of used that as our score. I basically like starred songs that I thought had to be in the film no matter what. And then I let my editors kind of run with it and pick things that they felt they wanted to cut to. It was a collaboration overall, but sometimes it's hard when you're super biased, you Mm -hmm. know, when you love their music. Right. And you just kind of want someone else to pick something that they think sounds good because you're trying to get an audience that doesn't know who the band is to like it. And both of my editors weren't big Matches fans or anything. Gotcha. So it was something that I said, these are the ones that have to be in the film. You know, here are some (laughs) instrumental ones. And I said, these are the points that I see them playing out, but just have at it. Whatever you like the sound Whatever of. Whatever vibe you're feeling at the time in the editing room. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. And I mean, there were a couple of times where I was like, this song shouldn't go here. You right. Know? Like there were a couple of those, but for the most part, I just really wanted that outside perspective to help with selecting and curating some of the matches music because mm-hmm. I wanted it to be accessible to an audience who didn't know who the matches were. Were there any figureheads that you were hoping to land for interviews in this that just didn't work out that you're like i wish i would have had tim Boy. armstrong <laughs> okay just because selfishly i thought it would have been really cool to interview tim armstrong and and just kind of get his 
perspective on the matches because mm-hmm. arguably some of Tim's tracks that he produced for the matches are like some of the poppiest ones, which just seems so not Tim Armstrong. <laughs> Got you. I was just interested to hear his perspective. I, I think that's really it. There were a few women in the music industry in the same scene at the time mm-hmm. that I really wanted to interview for the film just to get their perspective. But I just never heard back or, or anything. And so th- that's another reason why I was like really excited to get Cassidy Pope in the film, too, is because I feel like she's got a great perspective mm-hmm. and has not only experienced both the scene that the matches were associated with, for better or for worse, but she also has this new world of music that she is in, which is country music, which is yeah. a whole different kind of business, the way that country music operates. It was great getting her in the film. I'm trying to think if there's anyone else, but honestly, I'm... I'm really happy with the interviews, if if I'm honest. When we finally got Mark Coppice in the film, I mm-hmm. was just like, okay, like yeah. I feel like we got, I feel like we Actually, got a full circle. <laughs> you, you had a point in the film where they they mention they, they talk about going on tour with real big fish, and I was like, oh, are there any of them going? No, okay. Oh yeah, that I, is, I was like, a Aaron big Barrett, fan of them in high school. I was, oh my god, I me too. Loved real big fish. <laughs> So, yeah, I actually, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, Aaron Barrett uh, ended up declining to interview and I was like, so kind of bummed because yeah. I was like, oh, he would have been really cool to have in this moment. But I'm I'm fine with it. You yeah. know, like yeah. I remember when he declined and I was like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think like some of the band members that were in Real Big Fish at the time mm-hmm. that the matches were touring with them are just no longer there. Yeah, yeah. That's been a rotating. Oh, totally. Thing people, so. so. Gotcha. Um, so yeah, I was uh, so good. Good call. I was a little bit bummed about that one. I think it's just been like I've been working on this thing for six goddamn years. That, yeah, like, there's certain like <laughs> losses or like or you don't want to come like, fine. And, <laughs> right. Like there's certain losses and wins that you just sort of forget, you know, yeah. and you're just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that was a bummer. But I'm just happy with how it turned out. So. That's fair. No, it's, it's great. Yeah. I just that was just one of the moments like, oh, oh, OK, of course. You know, we have to mention the year we're in, 2020, year of the pandemic and all that. Your film's on a festival circuit that's been pretty much virtual. Is that correct to say? But have you at least been able to see your film in its final form with an audience in a theater at all? So just once. I'm one of the lucky ones is what I say because there are so many filmmakers who are deprived of that Mm -hmm. this year. But we had one world premiere screening on March 7th. wow (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's so funny because i say that like i say that date now and everyone's like whoa (laughs) like that is literally right before the world ended yeah and um yeah what actually happened is that whole week leading up to our world premiere because i knew we had matches fans flying out we had this whole thing planned we had an after party Mm -hmm. with a musical performance planned i mean there was gonna be a lot of proximity yeah (laughs) no social distancing and i remember the week before things were kind of feeling a little weird Mm -hmm. and then march 1st rolls around and Mm -hmm. you know i'm hearing rumors from friends that's like oh my god like my tech job like they closed down our office we're all working from home and i'm like it's (laughs) march 3rd and then south by southwest canceled and i remember that news came through because i i work at a production company and there's other filmmakers there and as soon as that news came through all of us were like fuck <laughs> like you know Come i have on. a world premiere on friday like Ugh. is it gonna cancel like we were so scared it was gonna cancel oh <laughs> we we just kind of kept being like okay let's just see what happens you know CineQuest kept being like we're still going we're still going and then saturday morning the morning of the premiere mm-hmm. 
they sent out an email where they were like, we are continuing with the programming until Sunday, end of day, but the rest of CineQuest is canceled due to, due to the you know growing concern and the city wants us to shut down all events. So all the screenings will continue as planned over the weekend, but otherwise we're done. And Ooh. our screening was sold out. It was probably like 75% capacity, which I still yeah. think is pretty impressive given a you know global pandemic meltdown. And I keep saying this in interviews and stuff, but it really felt like we were the quartet on the Titanic. You know, we were just like, <laughs> okay, everybody, let's just have fun. It's going to be fine. Oh, you know? God. Yeah. I remember like going to the screening that night and just being like, okay, no hugs. But it's it was the world premiere elbows. of a film that I've been working on. Yeah, it was like with, clothed, with elbows. Clothed elbows. Clothed elbows. Right? There you go. That's what it started with. But instead, it was just like by the end of the night, I was just hugging everybody. It was a big, sweaty, you know, tiny show. We took over this little bar. Yeah. And it was it was amazing. It was an amazing night. But mm-hmm. it was also just, what's happening? <laughs> you know? Really weird. So weird. So I haven't seen it in a theater with people since. I'm... I'm dying to virtual screenings. It's great to reach an audience and it's great to socialize film festivals mm-hmm. to an audience that might not know what they are. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause that's been a common misconception, but the energy exchange that we desire as artists, um, mm. just like doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm definitely craving some live in-person screenings, but I'm not quite ready to risk my life for it. <laughs> no, nobody is. I just gotta say like this, documentary it's one of the most relatably human that i've ever seen about art or the entertainment industry i was touched watching it the dollar calculations that you've thrown in there about the business practice industry the difference between exposure points and actual financial success i don't think i've seen it presented in such a understandable way or a realistic way that i can't recall <laughs> like i i was like holy crap this is real this is dollars and cents and i lived in los angeles for four years and i had many friends that were trying to break in the music industry and this is and they didn't even go as far as the matches but this was their kind of their life and you really see that and nobody i don't i've never seen a documentary that shows that side oh well thank you it was really important to me to to drive the message to mm-hmm. people that there is a very, very stark disconnect between what is outwardly perceived as success and what mm-hmm. is actually sustainable behind the scenes. What's interesting in this digital transition that the industry has gone through is that physical media obviously either no longer exists or no longer has monetary value, which inevitably takes away the value of music. Artists mm-hmm. no longer make money off of music. So how do they make money? And so the first solution in the early 2000s was touring. Bands toured already, but like Mm -hmm. bands didn't tour as much as they toured starting in like 2004, 2005. That's when it was like bands going on the road for 10 months out of the year. That's how they made their income. And it's not healthy or sustainable. Touring is great. Live shows are awesome. But it's the expense of human energy. There's no backup pitcher that you can swap in for your lead singer. That lead singer is fraying their voice every single night. It's not healthy or sustainable. I wanted to show that exhaustion and how hard it is to break through. But also, I don't want to like guilt people into buying music, but it's just like, you just have to understand that it's a reciprocal relationship. We are not entitled to musicians' art. No, We need to support our artists if we want artists to keep making more art. And that's where a lot of these bands fall by the wayside is it's just they can't keep going it's either physically too draining or they right. just 
can't support themselves. And when you want to have a family, when you want to like, not even, I mean, even if you don't want to have a family, you just want to have your own apartment. Right. It's just a cheap ass studio apartment. Like what's the point if you're not going to be there 10 months out of the year? And why would you use your money to drain it into a place that you're never at? If you're lucky enough to have supportive parents and you live with them, is that a great thing to be doing in your late 20s? Like it doesn't feel great. (laughs) No, no. Justin's side of the story, really, that happened to myself when I lived in Los Angeles. I was like, I'm so sorry. No, it was just, I don't want to wake up 40, 50, and this is going to be it. This is the one. And, or, you know, paycheck to paycheck. And I was like, I, I, I don't think I can do that. And I, I made a change in my life. It was like the best change ever. And artistically, while I'm not in Los Angeles and doing stuff, like I've found an avenue that's been far more fruitful for me and successful. And like that's something, you know, see, but I was like, yeah, that that's really a big thing that happens to you in like probably your mid late twenties. And I actually had a, I had lunch with a friend. I hadn't been to LA. Like I moved back and I didn't go back for like eight years. And I had lunch with a friend. I traveled out there, and he told me he's like, you know. I, I go back to your decision like all the time. He's like, it's too late for me now, but I wonder if I should. I'm like, no, dude, you do your thing. Do your thing. I don't feel bad about it, but like, not all of us can do it. Like, I, I couldn't. Some people are very well suited for that lifestyle. Right. Yeah. You know, and that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. But if that's not what you want, that creeps in on you. And it's not that, you know, you don't want to be creative or you don't want to like make music. It's just that in order to have a means to an end, you have to tirelessly tour and do all these things that might not just physically be sustainable to you or mentally healthy either. You know, there's a huge mental health disparity too. And I'm starting to see it more and more because if you think about it, the musicians who went out on the road Mm -hmm. 15 years ago, they're all like starting to hit their mid to late thirties, early forties. It's like soldiers coming back from war, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, okay, that's maybe an unfair comparison. Obviously, it's not the same. but There is like a certain level of stunted maturity in in ways of just handling yourself, being able to take care of yourself instead of being handled by somebody else. But also there's an exhaustion and like a mental health disparity that Mm -hmm. comes with it, too. And that's something that I feel like is about to become its own epidemic right you know of musicians coming off the road with all of these mental health issues and inability to take care of themselves and i don't want to like discredit anybody because i feel like a lot of people make make it through a lot of people have support or are able to make it through but i still feel like i mean we see a mental health crisis in our musicians right now like we're hearing it in their songs we're seeing it in a death toll and it's not (laughs) Yeah, it, it, there is something causing it. And I think a huge part of it is just sustainability mm-hmm. and sustainability for artists of all verticals, you know, yeah. need, needs to be considered in this digital era where we as consumers just want to consume yeah. with kind of an air of entitlement. And it's not fair <laughs> to no, our artists, no. you know? Yeah, it's anyway. Piracy. No, I get real soapboxy about it. So, hey, no, <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Um, it's hard to learn that you can do other things keep it going evolve what you're doing find mm-hmm. peace and creativity in that but people think it's got to be this way this is how success is made forgetting that there are new paths to success carved all the time totally uh, and it's and it's not even just about the new paths to success i think too it's about like redefining success and i feel like that was the biggest thing that gave the matches new life is mm-hmm. they were like well we didn't make it we didn't break through But then when they came back and there was this very welcoming community Mm -hmm. that not only loved each other, but loved the band, 
I think that to them realize that they did make it. And I think mm-hmm. that's the important thing to understand as an artist is that you don't need to be on the radio to like be successful. Being a household name is nice. Like, sure, yeah. it would be great to be the fucking Beatles. Sure, it <laughs> yeah. would be great to, you know, like <laughs> yeah. be a historical band, you know, like, or but at least but a like, big one hit wonder everyone goes back to. That'd be, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. But at the same time, it's like you think about, I, I mean, the turnover for artists these days. I mean, w- like, where I remember in one of the interviews with Ben Young, who was the Matches Guitar Tech and is now the biggest bands in the world, Guitar Tech. Mm-hmm brought up something that I hadn't thought about before, but he's like, where are the headliners? Where are the festival headliners? Like, where are the ACDCs? Where are the... Where are the Rolling Stones? It's just the saturation of artists in the market right now mm-hmm. and the turnover that we have with our like consumption mm-hmm. just like isn't making things stick in quite the same way. The whole legendary rock star thing, it's mm-hmm. just it's like so much harder to come by. Right. And I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, okay. but I think it does lend some perspective to the artists who are like, great, I got a song on the radio. We did it. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, nope. nope. Like, you have to keep writing good music and keep slaving over it in order to, like, make it happen. Yeah, I think having a hit song on the radio is great. You actually can make some decent money with that if you mm-hmm. own some of at least 50% of your publishing right, and right. you're able to, like, and it depends on what percentage of the, you know, publishing you are a part of of that song. If you're not listed as a writer on that song, you're not making a dime yeah you know? there you go so. you know true true <laughs> there's a lot of things to consider and i think the biggest one is just to like take those goal posts set them at a level that mm-hmm. doesn't have fame in mind you know make right. art that you love that you're proud of and your audience will find you it's so much easier now to get your art out there and if it hits big cool yeah great if it doesn't but it's able to sustain you that's the fucking dream there you know? yeah yeah Exactly. Nobody wants your dream to kill you. And a lot of the no. times the artists that like hit it big, I feel yeah. like that. I mean, the dream is killing you. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. Before we move on, I just want to share this film. Well, I've said it's one of my favorite of the year. I was asked to review it. At the time, I was in deep pre-production to launch this podcast. And I write for a site and I was trying to, I didn't have time, but I really wanted someone to cover it. And I couldn't find a good writer to do it. I wasn't going to give it to a, what I find, subpar writer. And I just couldn't find it. And I was like, fine, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, whatever. I'm going to put it on. And sometimes things come from unexpected places. And I love the film. And it built my enthusiasm and refueled my strength to get across the finish line. Especially when you I posted it and the amount of gratitude and thankfulness and stuff that you guys gave me. The band, you, whatever, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, it felt great and it really helped me give me the confidence to, because at the time I was like, is anyone going to listen to this thing? Is it going to go well? And that really moved. So I'm not going to forget the film. Like, it really hit me at the right time. So, oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. And honestly, your review meant so much to me, too. Mm-hmm. And and the other people on the crew, because oh, you just you sit with something for so long and mm-hmm. you think this is ne- <laughs> this is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you work over every frame and every detail. And then just seeing anyone react to it. I mean, honestly, even if you gave me a terrible review, I've been like, <laughs> fucking thank you for watching it. <laughs> like, It'll you know? come up in a search. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, well, no, I mean, not even that. I, we tell stories 
so that somebody else can kind of take something from that story Mm -hmm. for themselves. And I think that's why I got into this industry to tell stories and hopefully give somebody either a mirror or just something Mm -hmm. that they could take something from it. And uh, it meant a lot to me. And I'm so glad that it hit you at the right time. And yeah, it's just like, it's just cool, man. When people actually watch your art, it means a lot. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) and it's great. And I've I've watched it a couple times now. Pretty good stuff. Thank you. I hope you get like a Blu-ray or something for it. I collect physical medias, hopefully. Trying. Trying. I know that's not the easiest thing to get across, but... It's it's something that I mean I'm going to do anyway because I've got Kickstarter backers I owe them mm-hmm. a DVD or a Blu-ray it's probably just going to end up being a Blu-ray but I think for me and this is something that I don't want to get too caught up on but I'm like oh a Blu-ray that means bonus features all the scenes that hit the cutting room floor that I thought about like hours I could and hours put those in there but then I think oh it could be cool to you know I just start having all these ideas of fun things to do for the Blu-ray mm-hmm. and then yeah I'm just like. <laughs> Get the movie a distributor first, then worry right, about the Blu-ray. Because right. <laughs> then maybe somebody will actually give you the money to have somebody else get all that material for you. <laughs> you there, yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's like, all. <laughs> I want all this on it. Mm-hmm. Take Here are the it. things. Yeah. There you Here go. are the things. Make it happen. Make it work. <laughs> yes. Eventually. But yes, I swear. We'll get it on Blu-ray at some point. I just got to figure out how to do that or find someone to figure it out for me. <laughs> all right. Excellent. I like to hear that. That's stupid punk rock. I don't, you know, I just think of it as rock and roll because that's what it is. Stunning, says Robert Hilbert of the LA Times. Bracing, stimulating, and technically superb, Todd McCarthy of Variety. Anyone who wants to learn about the new music at arm's length should check out Penelope Spheres' chilling new film, Chris Morris, LA Reader. Suburban Voodoo, Doug Simmons, The Boston Phoenix. The decline documents a sociological phenomenon that is the foundation for the most shocking American youth movement in history. Spheres Films presents fear, black flag, circle jerks, germs, and X in... See it in a theater where you can't get hurt. The Decline of Western Civilization is directed by Penelope Spheres and is a documentary film between 1979 and 1980 that takes a look into the Los Angeles punk rock scene that was largely ignored by the rock music press of the time. It follows the bands Black Flag, Germs, X, Alice Bag Band, The Circle Jerks, Catholic Discipline, and Fear. Spheres should go on to direct two sequels of the documentary. I've seen The Metal Years. I haven't seen the third one. Third one is a heartbreaker. It's so oh, okay. good. you got to see it. It's about gutter punks. Check- okay, I'm going to check it out soon. I got to a point where I was checking them out. Something probably happened in my life, and then I just never 
got to the third it's not one. an easy watch okay i'll be honest but it's right. it's great it's getting watched soon <laughs> She's also has a cult favorite documentary, Suburbia, and familiar 1990s films, Wayne's World, The Beverly Hillbillies, Little Rascals, and Black Sheep, a Chris Farley film. And you can watch it on Amazon Prime, Tubi, or Pluto right now, so you want to watch it after you hear us talk about it. Uh, Chelsea, we toggle over a couple choices for a film to talk about, but ultimately we landed on this one. What had you leading toward discussing this one, which marks the first time I've talked about it? Well, actually... Second time I've talked about a documentary on the show because we just talked about Bleeding Audio. <laughs> so second time, Aha. two for one. Had to, had to keep it on brand. On um, brand? Okay. <laughs> no, I figured. I, so I picked The Decline of Western Civilization because for many reasons. One, it's a film that I'm really inspired by. I mean, there really isn't a whole lot that I drew from Decline into Bleeding Audio, except maybe the tattoo mm-hmm. scene. There is a scene in decline where the dudes in x are tattooing each other okay i don't know it just it was so it was so raw you know yeah and i always kind of thought oh god like i really want to film people getting tattoos like there's something so emotionally powerful about the act of permanently branding your body right Right. and even them here's penelope spheris interviewing these reckless punk rockers right and Mm -hmm. you think oh they're just putting stupid shit on their arm and stuff and she asks them like oh like you know, do you get a tattoo that doesn't mean something to you? And one of the guys says, oh, it's fucking stupid. Why would you do that? <laughs> you only get something tattooed if it really means something. And I was like, oh, that's that's great. You know, that's always stuck with me. But I picked this movie because one directed by the most punk rock badass lady in the world, Penelope Spears. Right. And it's just so raw. Like there's so right. much about it. It's just these, these little it's almost just a collection of short films of insane punk rock performance and really weird verite off-the-cuff interviews with oh, these yeah. punk rockers who are either totally loaded the whole time or are so convicted to what they believe in mm-hmm. that they're almost nonsensical at times. It's, it's great. insane, yeah. Yeah. It feels there's nothing like it feels dangerous. Like yeah. I I'm scared of some of these people. I'm scared for some of these people. And I fear for the documentarians during this. Totally. And they're like filming with like 16 millimeter cameras. Just yeah. Just like sitting there with the cranks probably like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because it is like it, these shows are intense. They're dangerous. They're dangerous shows. <laughs> right. And they're like, they go to their homes. It's like, oh, Black Flag lives in a, like a death dungeon. So With all the come graffiti. On yeah. And like, they're like, oh yeah, this is like an abandoned church. And they like keep opening cabinets and they're like, here's a bed. Right. Like, like pulling back a curtain. Here's like, here's another bed i'm not sure any kind of like music or documentary has really had me feel this way since i'm sure all these people were kind of harmless in real life but they're presented in this anarchic reckless and like powerful way yeah holy crap well i think what's so great about it and this is why i think penelope spheris is such a fucking badass punk rock legend Mm -hmm. is she doesn't judge them she doesn't you know she's like pretty much just one of them and she's literally just asking them questions because she just wants to know like there's an Mm -hmm. energy because you hear her voice asking them questions sometimes and she's just so genuinely curious and unjudgmental and I feel like that's if there's anything that kind of inspired me when I was approaching making a music documentary or just like learning how to interview for a music documentary it's to go in without judgment and to just listen Mm-hmm. And and understand that everybody has a way of living their life. Everybody has like a story and it's not right or wrong. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, uh, well, you, you know what I mean? <laughs> when it yeah. comes to like punk rock and like some of, and like some of these music things, she just goes in with that feeling. I am not here to judge you. I am here to learn about you and learn with you, you know? And I think mm-hmm. that that energy is what gave such honest interviews, yeah. you know, and allowed her to embed herself into that world in a way that I don't think she felt unsafe once just judging by the way the whole thing was filmed is like she didn't feel unsafe. So in the movie during the fear performance, yeah, leaving, he just starts rallying up the crowd by like throwing a bunch of homophobic slurs and like he's just and literally just trying to rile them up. And that punk girl in the front Mm -hmm. gets up and like like starts like fighting him and this whole brawl breaks out i'm just saying they're like oh my god the cameras you know like how is it so volatile like the whole thing but they're all smiling at the end then she's like in the front row just like moshing and she's fine and everybody's just having fun and Mm -hmm. just releasing she tries to spin a positive way of them showing their raw anger and aggression and spite that they seem to have and that it all like they have it in their minds but they take it out here in a yeah communal place rather than just randomly on the streets yeah it's interesting like the i think like the structure of the film is also really interesting because she has these colorful interviews of the bands and their performances but then she has these black and white interviews with what i imagine are concert attendees and she asked some questions about like, oh, what do you like about it? Why do you think you feel this way? And a lot of them are like, I don't know. I'm just like pissed about everything yeah. all the time, you know? And it's just like, this just helps me get out my anger. Or one girl was talking about depression and, you know, this mm-hmm. is 1980, right? Yeah. Like, and she's talking about depression and how she doesn't feel depressed. These shows help her have this release. It's just such a, a great mark of why this kind of music attracts people who are outsiders, yeah. you know? It's just such a kind of a weird ass movie too, and like seeing baby Pat Smear. (laughs) Oh yeah, and he he talks about punching women. Yeah, I'm like, oh man, he'd be he'd be canceled nowadays. That came out, took him out of your band. (laughs) But he could have been joking too. It seemed like there's a harsh sense of humor. Totally, but I think too the the point that I felt he was trying to make, not to defend punching women, Mm -hmm. but I think the point he was trying to make is he's like. I, I would punch a woman or a man. And that the thing is that it's it's juxtaposed like right after that woman goes after fear. Yeah, where she's, okay, just, yeah. she's the one who instigates the fight and she's like punching everybody and she's like, what the fuck? You know, and then like the yeah. band is punching her. True. And it's this thing where I don't condone violence. I don't think punching <laughs> is the answer. I, I just I feel like it was that thing where it's just like, I don't care if you're a girl or a boy. If you're messing with me, I'm going to punch you. You know what I mean? Like, okay. that's kind of the vibe that it felt like. But yeah, I don't condone punching women. But no. I, that's what I think is so interesting about the way these interviews are, is that in some ways you think they're putting on a show, but in other ways you're just like, no, they don't give a fuck. Yeah, they like, don't give they a fuck. Just... There's some that I think they decided to declare this certain lifestyle and then they're beyond gone in believing in it and creating it. Now they live in it. Like there's, they're like a persona. Like I, I've met musicians and stuff before that like decided that this is who I'm going to be. I'm not really this person, but whenever I'm playing, whenever I'm a show, I'm going to be this guy. And a lot of them Mm. asshole behavior and their friends are all like, Oh no, he's a really nice guy. I'm like, I, I don't want the guy that turns into an asshole just because that's who he wants to be when he's around people. But there's some some of that, but I think all these people are like so gone into believing their philosophies that they created or and they're kind yeah. of 
A lot of them are like those half-baked ideas you have when you're a teen in your early 20s that you grow up and you're like... 100%. You're like, mm, maybe I'm... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's that feeling of rebelling and just like going against the status quo. It's interesting because I feel like now... Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, like that was, you know, 1980, right? right. So, like if you think about the time then, it was just like coming out of the 70s and just there's so much anger and just like so much oppression that, yeah, you know, you had Vietnam, was Nixon getting, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, and so there's so much anger at the status quo and so many people telling you you have to do the status mm-hmm. quo. And I feel like that's happening again now. There's this narrative of you have to go to college, you know, and get in student loan debt and you're never going to buy a house. And like all of us are just kind of angry about this status quo. And so right. like no matter the generation, like, you're going to want to rebel and like showing punk as in the, you know, like early LA punk scene in the 1980s showing this feeling of rebelling one of the songs in it is like criticizing oh like beverly hills like all the stupid people they look exactly the same i don't want to be like you like you you know like you all look the same and you're lame and that's it it's like wanting to define yourself and be an individual i think you know this is about the la punk scene right Mm -hmm. which is very aggressive but also like if you think about la in the 1980s too Again, Beverly Hills, lots of clones, like this is what you're supposed to be. This Mm -hmm. is who you're supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be. And then you think about uh, the punk scene in the Bay Area. You think about the Gilman scene, Mm -hmm. which happened arguably quite a bit later in the Bay Area. It was like Gilman was all about community, about like welcoming people in, you know, and like it was like there was, you know, moshing and all this stuff, but it was just a different vibe than like Mm -hmm. this really aggressive punk scene in LA. And I just find that very interesting between the two that... The music feels similar, but the mentalities are so different, it feels like. I, I feel like this also evolved, like, another similar situation would be, like, the grunge scene from the late 80s to mid-90s. Kind yeah. of, It's not as violent, and people are more, it's more about depression, it seems, and stuff. But there's the, the moshing, the communal sense of this, like, no one understands us, we're going to be who we are. <laughs> For them, unfortunately, they got the, oh, we're going to commercialize the hell out of this stuff. Right. And then it and then it loses its its, its luster. And then for you them. just get more depressed. And then they get more <laughs> depressed. But th- that was a similar thing. I was I was thinking about like when did this happen again? I was like, probably right there. Probably. And then it just at least it, peaceful evolutions with them as they as they come <laughs> less less violent. But yeah, there's nothing like this. Uh, when did you first see this movie? I first saw Decline of Western Civilization in college in my female filmmakers class. Oh, okay. Like basically a feminist filmmakers class, which honestly changed my life. There were so many things that I didn't know about, about the history of film and women's involvement in it. And Mm -hmm. then their subsequent booting of being a part of it. I don't know if you know this, but the early 1920s and 30s, women dominated the film industry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dorothy Arzner and like all of these other like amazing female directors. But then legally, it was deemed not a feminine job. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. like women were just like cut out of the industry. So there are all these amazing silent filmmakers. And then suddenly there's not. Yeah. And so anyway, we studied a little bit of the history of women in film and then studied a bunch of different female directors. And we watched Decline of Western Civilization. And I was just hooked, you know, Yeah. because I also think, too, it, this is a weird <laughs> reason to idolize Penelope Spheris. But I've always so admired how she handled her career as an artist. Mm hmm. 
and the reason <laughs> the reason why is because I mean here she is doing like Wayne's World mm-hmm. and Beverly Hillbillies and Little Rascals. Mm-hmm. And she's doing all these commercial fluffy films in between doing these fucking insane (laughs) punk rock documentaries. It's literally using the man to pay for your art. And I've always really respected that about her. Mm -hmm. Like, if anything, that's like one of the reasons why she's one of my favorite directors is because I'm like, God, you're so like you're playing everybody. You are directing the little fluff piece and you're taking that money and you're making the film of your dreams. And I think that's really cool. And so I've always admired that about her too, of just kind of doing whatever she wants and not being afraid of playing the game to serve a different purpose. Yeah. And to her credit, I, I like both Wayne's World and Black Sheep quite a bit. So I, I love <laughs> Wayne's World. Who doesn't love Wayne's World? Yeah. I'm a huge fan of hers. Yeah. And I saw her, there was like a, a triple feature and it was... Decline of Western Civilization, Wayne's World, and then maybe Suburbia, or maybe it was just a double feature. I don't know. But in her interview, I guess when they were putting Wayne's World together, mm-hmm. I mean, she knew a bunch of rockers and stuff, and that's kind of like how she got the job. She knew mm-hmm. a lot of people at SNL. She directed a couple of SNL skits. And um, I guess when they were doing Wayne's World, it was actually a really low-budget film. They were like, look, Penelope, like, like we can't really pay you that much. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, can we pay you in percentages? And she was, again, punk as fuck. Mm. And she's like, sure, just as long as it's in perpetuity. And they're like, okay, great. And so I think she owns like 8% of Wayne's World. Oh. Eight, which is huge. That is big. And she was like, she like the whole audience gasped, you know, they're like 8% of Wayne's World, you know? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, they're never going to sign a deal like, like that ever, right, ever again. Yeah. So don't ask for it. But wow. I got lucky. <laughs> And I, I went to another time, like if she's if she's here for a screening, they're able to rope her in for like a Q&A mm-hmm. in San Francisco. I've been to two different ones now. And I saw a double feature of Suburbia and Decline of Western Civilization 3, which I'm going to say one more time. I'll watch you it. You gotta see it. I will um, watch it. But also like Suburbia back to back with mm-hmm. Decline 3 is a little rough. It's okay. Like, it's not going to be the most uplifting evening, but it was it Sometimes was we need downers. Sometimes we need Sometimes. Them. I never get signatures and I got a signed poster from her. Oh, so. excellent. Excellent. Pretty stoked. There he even go. says to Chelsea on it. Oh, <laughs> there you it's like go. the only time I've ever gotten a signature and I've been like really excited about it. I'm just yeah. like, Oh my God, I never asked for autographs. She's like, do you want me to sign it? I was like, well, if you're going to anyway, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not a signature person. I'm more of a picture person than a signature, but totally. Yeah. Well, I like don't do either. And then when uh-huh. she was like, oh, I'm just going to sign it. And I was like, okay. She's like, what's your name? And I was like, okay. And she's like, what's your name? And I was like, oh, it's Chelsea. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. I, I only saw this movie, like, I think six or seven years ago. And uh, from correct, I like a lot. Uh, Amy Nicholson was, had a podcast and it was the subject of their show. And I, I was like, I'd never heard of it. And it sounded so crazy. And I checked it out and I was like, well, this is this is intense. This is this is something else. Which I've noticed, it's a documentary, but it's secretly a concert film. Oh, totally. Like all the songs are so short and fast, you don't realize you've seen like fourteen performances, which is enough for like an album by the end. And that's really cool that she sneaks it's them in. So awesome! It's really cool, and I mean, and some of them are just wrecked, like like with germs. Mm-hmm. Darby Crash, he's so are, blasted. Yeah. Oh God, it's so sad. You know what ended up happening to him too? It's just so crazy mm-hmm. that she basically documented Darby Crash like the, the end, year before yeah. he died. It's just so intense seeing him so blasted, but still like getting these words out, singing along, just being so faded. It's so crazy. And he's, um, he's and, like one of our calm ones too. He's like <laughs> less vile. 
Yeah. Till he gets yeah. on stage, but yeah. When he's uh, at home cracking eggs and stuff. Just like, I know. I love her kind of her trope because in Decline too, you know, she like films Ozzy Osbourne making mm-hmm. eggs. It's like yep. her thing. Like I want to see them cooking breakfast, which Home is a breakfast. genius documentary move. So good. And Ozzy is just, you know, incoherent when he's making eggs too <laughs> in, right. in that film. Sorry, I don't mean to keep bringing up the other two films either, but they're just oh, such it's a okay. great it- collection. Mm-hmm. Of just like musical history. And that's what's interesting too about the third one is you were talking about how this ideology, this like punk ideology sort of like creates these personalities. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what the decline three is kind of about is how the ideology, it gives you this purpose and this pride, but it can also Mm -hmm. completely destroy your life. And it's almost like these gutter punks, they are hindered and stunted because they can't let go of rebelling against the system they would rather live on the street and scrape by and starve than go to high school and get a degree again like you like she approaches these films with no judgment no and it's just a portrait of what these ideologies can benefit to you but also what they can take away from you too if you live your life in absolutes, I feel like you can't have right. a very balanced life. And I feel like, if anything, Decline 3 shows that in a very interesting way. Definitely. And I well, I haven't seen Decline 3, but <laughs> I agree with what you're saying. She kind of presents, here it is, mm-hmm. in its honest form, rather, and doesn't say one way or the other about it. There's no slant to it. The only no. slant you get is some of the, the journalists talking about stuff, which is kind of funny. It's like, they, one guy's like... I, I've been through one too many youth movements in my life. <laughs> and I was like, that was. And he's like, out. what? And he's like, uh, and he's like, tw- he asked me the late twenties, like, yeah, like max. But yeah, is that the guy that was like up on the like hillside with yep. L.A. in the background? It might have been him. Yeah. Yeah, I was just like, you pretentious fuck. Like he asked <laughs> to be shot there. Oh he, yeah, his office is right around the corner. Can we go out and just? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Documentary filmmaking inherently is telling a story with a perspective, mm-hmm. you know, with a narrative voice. Even though you're presenting real life, you're still telling a story. And so you adjust the narrative to kind of fit that story. And that's something that I feel like I learned making my film, Bleeding mm-hmm. Audio. I kept thinking we have to hit all the milestones. We have to tell the story like it is. Um, <laughs> that's just not how like storytelling works you know you have to tell the story that is compelling and gets the message Mm -hmm. across you know and it's still truthful it still can be honest but it doesn't have to be pedantic you are still telling it with a perspective i think what's what is interesting about these decline films is that the perspective is just no judgment is that i feel like she could have so easily made this film and added some sort of narrative to be like oh yeah at these fucking it's, losers look it's at how called crazy punk music and your kids may already be doing it yeah <laughs> exactly i feel like she just presents it where it's just like however you feel about this by the end of it says more about you than it does about me as a director and more about the people on the screen right you know well I'm, and i'm saying like i'm almost 40 and watching this movie is different than i me watching it as a teen or in my 20s and the ideologies like i said i call them half-baked now but <laughs> Back then, I would have probably possibly latched onto them. And it's hard to grasp and understand, like, in your teens and 20s, the life that comes after that I already mentioned. And just the evolution, reflection of things that let you know that that may not work how you're dreaming it, but it will find a way or something. Like, 
Because people are totally. angry. They want to be understood. They want to already be at this level. And there's such a hill to climb to an experience in life that you have to get through that you just don't want to at the time. But totally. um, but yeah, this this is a film that I think people should watch like young, middle, later. Ooh. Continue to return to. See how your perception of it changes. It's just, it's one of those films that I'm definitely going to return to it more. This is like the maybe second, third time I've seen it. And I've gotten something new out of it every time. And that's kind of interesting from a documentary to grab that. Normally, I get that from Blade Runner. I see something new in it every time. But <laughs> totally. like, this is yeah, different experience with that. I mean, revisiting it for this interview, I I felt the same way. Like, I feel like I've watched this film so many times. It's probably my fifth time, sixth time mm-hmm. seeing it. Maybe even seventh. I don't know. I, I watched it a lot. I've seen it like in theaters twice. I saw it yeah. like in my in my class and then I watched it outside of class. Anyway, watching it again now is I was especially like after having made my own documentary because I don't I, I watched it like when we were about to go into post-production just to watch it mm-hmm. and watching it now I was just kind of watching it with a different eye and it's just crazy to think about everything that went into making it but also just like how she had to approach her subjects to give them that safety to just be themselves and I feel like a lot of it is their brazenness like they're able to be themselves pretty easily but to Mm -hmm. be able to present on camera in that way and share like some of the more vulnerable stuff was like really impressive to me and also just a little note too is I uh, I love the opening because she has everybody read out the release, right? That says, right. there is a film crew here, you know? And oh, she yeah. shows every single band reading the release to the audience. And each band reads it very differently and with their own personality. Yeah. And it's such a good opener. Oh, it like, is. I just love it so much because each one is so unique. And, and also just seeing Darby from Germs blasted and reading this thing. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so intense, you know? And you're like, okay, like, strap in. Yeah. <laughs> We're about to go for a ride. And on top of that, there's one thing I noticed with this film, too, is it's the first time you can see kids being like shitheads to the camera. Like, they're all like, nah, fuck you, get away. Like, and I don't think I've seen that with a young youthful group before this movie that I can recall. It's like, oh. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like every time one of them gets a camera on, they're like, they do something stupid or they, mm-hmm. they're they pissed or something like that. And I, I can't recall the, the disrespect for a camera from the youth back then because the hippies have been like, hey, man, you know, like yeah. trying to get their message. These people are like, get that off me or I'm too cool for this. But, yeah, punk as fuck. and hey the national film registry thought that too because they deemed it culturally historically or aesthetically significant and put it in the vaults for all of time back in 2016 i believe well deserved very well deserved a historical timepiece and everybody should watch it definitely (laughs) definitely. what else this is where we talk about a little bit about other things we may have taken in recently, like books, media, whatever, or something we just put out into the world. Chelsea, what else? Oh boy. Well, 2020 has been a spell, y'all. So <laughs> like, I, I, I mean, currently it's November 23rd and I feel mm-hmm. like I've already dug into shitty Christmas movies there you in go. the last few days and it's just been just like a warm, dumb hug. But what I will say is um, in terms of consuming things that I would recommend. (laughs) So Bleeding Audio was recently a part of Sound Unseen, which is a music Mm -hmm. and film festival. And I was lucky enough to get a badge and watch a few movies. And I watched a movie that I am obsessed with, which is called The Sound of Metal. Oh, Um, okay. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. And I think it's about to come out or it's already out. It's either going to be it's going to be on some platform, I think it was originally set for like a theatrical release. Holy shit, this movie. I love it. And I'm like a little annoyed because I've like written something kind of similar. This one has a different theme, though. So I feel like I can get away with it. But it's basically like um, this drummer of this like metal band. He loses his hearing mm-hmm. and it's about his journey to accept that. And I mean, the idea of a musician losing their ability to hear is heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> and it just honestly, Rizumed, he was incredible in this movie. Yeah, they're saying like, Oscar, I, like big oh time. Oh my God, 100% Oscar. He's so amazing. And he's he's like a Brit and he does this amazing American mm-hmm. accent. Yeah. And so I am obsessed with Chloe Zhao, who's another really amazing female director. She did a movie called The Rider a couple years ago. And like, the writer is about, you know, like a, a guy who rides horses who can't anymore because of an injury resulting from the thing that he loves, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's like really scary is like when the thing you love like hurts you yeah. and you can no longer experience that anymore. And to me, this had that same kind of vulnerability and fear, but in a much more aggressive, intense way, I think, because the subject is also battling addiction. Okay, I'm not going to give anything away, but just Sound of Metal, it's so good. Excellent. Um, and yeah, I hope Reese Ahmed, he was he was also a Nightcrawler. Mm-hmm. Nightcrawler, uh, oh, I love Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler's so good. Yeah, he just, I just, I don't know, I just love this actor. Every time I see him, I'm like, oh, I really mm-hmm. like that guy. And then I saw this movie and I, whew, obsessed. Excellent. Myself, I actually, I have a big one. I got to see as a recording. Last night, I saw Tenet. Oh, I how had, was it? It's fun. It's a good movie. Uh, but I, I had a friend rented out the IMAX theater, uh, the State Museum one and where I live. It's a 70 millimeter too, so the real deal. And he only allowed nine people to come so we could all have our own row and be as far. And the theater only had a concession stand worker and the projectionist. So it was like this and it was at night. There was nobody there. like it was safe as hell. To watch, so I was like, I, with eight other people watching Tenet. Oh my so, god, that is it, a good friend. I know, and I and I was like, and it was funny, like I never. And the movie just started; they didn't even play the IMAX intro, nothing like that. And they're like, "Please leave your trash in your seat, so we know which ones to wipe down, please." So there's that, and oh, we got free popcorn and drink. And Amazing, yeah. It just it was weird to be in a theater again, and then it's like once the Warner Brothers logo came up, I'm like, oh my god. I'm not supposed to get choked up at Tenant, but I'm in a theater again <laughs> watching a movie and it was fun. I think if you like Inception, this is right there with it. Like it's spectacle wise. I wish people could see it in the theater. It sucks they didn't hold on to this. I luckily, I got lucky. I got lucky. Yeah. And it wasn't really hard. There's small details in the film that I think watching it again will come to light better, but overall narrative, mm-hmm. pretty easy to follow. And I had no sound issues. I know people are saying, like, I couldn't hear stuff. I'm like, I had none. I, I really had none. The action in it is very innovative, like n- nothing you've seen so far. It's really playful. And cool. I enjoyed the hell out of it. I didn't expect I was going to see that in a theater this year. I thought I'd see it on 4K Ultra HD next month. But no, I, I will still see it on 4K Ultra HD next month. But I was like, wow, zero hour swish or whatever and got it in there so that's oh my gosh i'm so uh, jealous i'm like what was it like being in a movie theater it was weird it had a mask on it was it was i don't know it worked it was safe i like talked to my wife before i'm like do we think this is safe and she's like yeah this is i think this is safe so i was lucky 
so glad you got to see that. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, I'm excited to see Tenant. I will say that Christopher Nolan is just going to get a shudder up his spine when I say this. But I mean, I saw Interstellar on oh, an airplane no. screen. I know, I know. Blasphemy. I came home, immediately bought it and like watched it on our screen gotcha. here. I missed it in theaters because I'm a huge Nolan fan, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I didn't see Interstellar in theaters, but I, I love Nolan his mm-hmm. film pretension kind of bothers me, but I do think that seeing yeah. things in a theater, there's just something a little magical about it. Right. I mean, a lot of magical about it, but like, I, I am excited to see tenant. That guy knows how to make an action film. Oh and yeah. Make it weird. And I love yeah. it. I love, yeah. And the, the layering and rewatchability is quite there with it. I, I am expecting yeah. to hear so much hate about it. And I'm confused from the people that sit on their phones and try to watch a movie next month. But <laughs> hey, I, I enjoyed it and I'd rather be on the side that enjoyed it than the, the, hater side any day I of the week. I think like I feel like too it's just become this joke too where like Nolan's like it will only exist in theaters yeah. because that is who I am as Christopher Nolan. And but he never said that. He he always oh, said he true. preferred it. He never it. outwardly said it There's but been... he just kept they kept like pushing the release. They're like don't worry it'll be in theaters and it's just like just like give us the movie like we want to watch yeah. it. We'll pay you for it if you're worried about money and like mm-hmm. I get the experience is more important but it was one of those things where I'm just like just give us the movie. We're going to watch it. We're going to enjoy it. It's I'm going to give, give him a little bit of benefit of the doubt because we never saw him say it, you know he wants his movie in theaters but <laughs> of course with we them, all do with them putting wonder woman 84 out now on digital i'm like who was pushing that more was who was who was pushing to get that out maybe warner brothers was a little heavier handed than nolan now that we have this evidence but who knows yeah. uh, who knows tennis cool before we wrap this episode okay i want to mention that we are recording on doctor who day and I you know. Used to have a Doctor Who podcast, brilliantly titled <laughs> Doctor Hoodlums. Yeah. So, as a fellow Whovian, wearing a Doctor Who shirt today, it's probably too dark to see on my screen. Are you still keeping up with the show? Yes. Okay. Not quite as religiously as I had previously, but yes. Okay. Like, we usually just wait until the season's out and then just like watch the whole thing. Gotcha. <laughs> who's your favorite doctor and, com- and who's your favorite companion? Ooh. For a long time, it was Tenant. Okay. But I love Jodie Whittaker. I think she's like the best doctor. She's great. I love her so much. And honestly, it took me a while. But Peter Capaldi, I feel like his first season was just shit. And it wasn't his fault. It wasn't his fault. (laughs) And then he grew into this really great doctor. He was an old punk rocker. Like that was was the best angle to take. Yeah. Totally. And I feel like the first season they were like, oh, we're just going to make him like an old guy and then they were like no we need to like do hardened punk rocker you know and that that really sealed the deal for me but i have to say like for a long time it was tenant and then capaldi became a really close second Mm -hmm. and now i think i think jody whitaker is just (sighs) i don't know my thing with that i like i love jody but i'm like do i love jody or do i love jody's doctor i don't (laughs) in, in person interviews i'm like man she is just amazing and then she brings that energy to the role. So I'm like, is it just a Jody thing? Is it her doctor? It's, it's just who she is. <laughs> who she is. Like, I'd love to meet her. She's like so great. And she has taught like my, it's a family show. Like my kids watch it. And my son now, uh, he was kind of like, oh, girl. And I was like, just what? And now he thinks like, she's amazing. He wants girl girls for everything. He's like, daddy, we should, ha- we should have a girl president. They really should. I'm like, yes. thank you, Jody Whitaker. Thank you. So... <laughs> Oh, that is uh, that is great. That's really cool to hear. So I'm yeah. I'm happy to hear it. Very cool. Good good 
good dadding there. Good dadding, good, I guess. Good job. Thanks to the world of Who for opening doors. For my- <laughs> Who's your favorite doctor? I'm I'm old school Tom Baker. That's he's, oh. for it. he's my favorite. But the new ones, like my second favorite is David Tennant. He got me into the show more than I was as a kid. But but yeah, Tom Baker's got a lot of classic. He, there's a like his first couple of seasons have like this like kind of hammer horror esque aspect to them that it really draws me in a lot. Um, and I like uh, Robert Holmes is one of the better writers on the show and they got strong staff during that time and he has one of my favorite companions uh, in his later years is Romana who is like a fashion god like she just everything she wears is just like I would like a figure of that I would like just her outfits are amazing Oh, that's so. so cool. Yeah, I um, the kind of dynamic that we had on our podcast is that like I was kind of new who mm-hmm. and then my podcast co-host Zen was like old who. Okay. I mean, and present day who. And so he he knew all the old who references and stuff. And I kind of okay. was like new era. And so like we were eventually going to start going into the older seasons yeah. too. And we just never quite made it. Happens. We also had the ambition of, oh, let's release two podcasts a week. And it just burned us out. We should have done like one a week or one every other week. And it burned us out really quick, especially because we had a segment called Dr. Hooch, where I had to design <laughs> like a cocktail every episode for mm-hmm. the episode. And it was really fun. But like at a certain point, I was like, there's only so many things I can do. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I ran out. Like I can have fun, but like it, it became like an expensive venture too. just being like, Ooh, I have this idea for a cocktail. And then I was like, I have to go buy like these three different liquors. And then like I had like creme de cassis just like sitting in my house that gotcha. I had to like pour out. <laughs> but it was fun. Uh, gotcha. But in terms of like my favorite companion, it would have to probably be Donna. Donna. Oh yeah. Donna's good. Donna's good. She was great. She was really great. She was just lots of fun. And she had the most growth, I feel like. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. And they're mm-hmm. that, not the first one, her second appearance, which was her reintroduction when they had the window scenes, one of my favorite comedic That's moments so good. ever. That's so good. Oh, I love her. Gotcha. Okay, well, that'll do it for this episode. Chelsea, you gave me so much. I owe you the world. <laughs> Let people know where they can find more work from you, find you on social media, whatever you'd like to plug right here. You can follow me on Instagram. It's at Chelsea Christer. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Chelsmark on Twitter because Chelsea Christer is taken for some reason by somebody who got suspended. So if you're out there oh. in the Twitter world, help me out. <laughs> um, and I don't know. There's no other Chelsea Christers in the world that I know of. So maybe just somebody, I don't know. And evil ex-boyfriend or something i honestly have no mm. idea at chelsmark on twitter and then facebook whatever on facebook nobody uses facebook anymore right like we're all we're all we i all have it because it's a free place to throw Promote stuff. things i know that's like the only reason why i still have it too um but uh yeah don't um, <laughs> as soon as bleeding audio is over i'm deleting that fucking thing there um, you go watch the social dilemma <laughs> and uh but yeah sorry i'm turning this into a tirade and then um, i love for tirades bleeding, go for it <laughs> but for bleeding audio you can go to our website www.bleeding-audio.com we are on all the socials so just bleeding audio film on facebook bleeding underscore audio on twitter and bleeding audio film on instagram and you can look for the latest updates about the film about what festivals we're going to next and hopefully when we get distribution and yeah that's that's it 
All right. <laughs> I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brandon4KUHD. My written works at YSOBlue.com. The show will return tomorrow with a 4K Blues Day installment. And until then, always remember to keep the positivity in your online film chatter. Thank you for listening. The Brandon Peters Show is a Creative Zombie Studios production. Produced by Brad Shoemaker and Brandon Peters. Written and edited by Brandon Peters. Announcer vocals by Jessica Alsman. Theme song by Metavari. Web design and show art by Brad Shoemaker with Brandon Peters. All music and clips featured in the episode are property of their respective studios and no infringement is intended. Additional information on this and other episodes at thebrandonpetershow.com. For any inquiries, press opportunities, or sponsorship, contact mail at thebrandonpetershow.com. The show is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are found. I guess we used to do stuff. I mean, back, you know, it was good to have that kind of reputation then, you know, but um, not anymore, because now we can't play anywhere. Tell me, why, how, how is it that you're always getting hurt? Well, first I did on purpose. Yeah. To keep from being bored. <laughs>